And go ahead and open to the New Testament book of Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. This morning we're going to pick up where we left off last week in our study through this chapter. Slowly making our way through Hebrews this school year. Hebrews, where we are repeatedly given reasons to be encouraged and to persevere and be faithful in our faith in Christ because he is, to summarize the book, he is better than anything else that we could ever hope in or trust in or find our joy in or pursue. And at the same time, if you're familiar with the book, you know um, it's not all uh, sunshine and bubbles encouragement. There's a lot of um, stern and and hard warnings in the book. Uh, Warnings against walking away from Christ and um, warnings against finding our pleasure in something else or putting our trust in something else for our salvation. Now, certainly this letter was written 2,000 years ago. That's a long time. 2,000 years ago, and it was written to a particular group of people in in a particular place at a particular time, and so when you read it, it can seem really far away from us. Um, But it's actually not. I mean, the author of Hebrews is writing to professing Christians who had come out of Judaism, their life, that they had grown up Jewish, come out of that, placed their faith in Christ, professed faith in Christ, but were now tempted to go back to that old life in, in Judaism. They were tempted to go back to what was familiar to them. And... And, and, and perhaps to what they understood better. What was more comfortable. And when you put it like that, I mean, aren't we, we're all still kind of like that. To go back to what's comfortable. To go back to what uh, is more familiar to us. That's precisely why this letter is still relevant. Um, for us, what is familiar and what is comfortable may not be um, traditions about angels or... Figures like Moses or, or priests and sacrifices and all of that. But we have our own versions of it. We do. In, in 2 Timothy 3, for example, Paul told Timothy um, that in predominantly Gentile churches, that's us, even in that day, people would be, among other things, lovers of self, and lovers of money, Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. All while giving the appearance of godliness. That's 2 Timothy 3. And that's our struggle. That's our struggle. Those are the things that that tempt us away. That's our our comfort. That's our security. That's what we gravitate toward. We're so prosperous. And we we have comfort and ease all around us all the time. That our temptation is to trust in those things for our happiness and security and salvation even, if we may not put it in those terms, but yeah, we do. And if we don't recognize that in ourselves, we might want to reevaluate our self-awareness just a bit. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 6. uh, Oh, there it is. Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that 
plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pains. So the temptations to stray away from faithful obedience to Christ and to love and to desire things more than Christ are real in every generation. Um, and and they, might, they might seem really different and various. The love of money doesn't seem like um, any, to have anything to do with uh, trusting, uh, being drawn to the traditions of a particular faith. But at the root, they're really not. I mean, the, 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 the truth and the truth to fight them, whatever the temptation looks like to walk away from Christ, the truth in every case to fight it is the same. Namely, to realize that Jesus is better than whatever it is that you're tempted to leave him for, and he's more satisfying, which is the whole point of Hebrews. Um, Jesus is better than everything they were tempted to, to desire more than Christ. For them, it was desiring all the allurements of their former faith. For us, it's desiring all the allurements of the culture we live in. But in both cases, and for them and for us, Christ is better. He's better. That's been the aim of the whole letter. He, he has shown, just to get situate ourselves back in Hebrews, he has shown, because we're in chapter 7, that, that for those tempted to go back to their Jewish faith, Christ is greater and better than the angels who delivered the, the stone tablets of the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. That was chapter 1. You keep reading, and, and he's shown that, that Christ is, is, is greater and better than Moses, who stood at the head of that old covenant of the law and whom, and whom God used to bring the people of Israel out of 430 years of slavery in Egypt with a mighty hand. Christ is greater than that great figure. That was chapter 3. Christ is greater and, and better than Joshua who led the people into the promised land because that promised land, that earthly promised land that Joshua led them into was always a picture of a greater heavenly rest in reality that Jesus was going to bring about. That was chapter 4. And now, since chapter 5, all the way through the chapter we're still in today, chapter 7, the author of Hebrews has been showing that Jesus is greater and better than all of the priests of the Old Covenant. All the priests that they would be going back to if they left Christ and went back to Judaism. The priests who stood between them and God on a daily basis. Um, and in whose work they trusted to make them right with God and to, to cleanse their consciences from the guilt of their sin and to give them the assurance that they were right with God. He has spent more time on that issue than any other issue in Hebrews. He spent a chapter on the angels. He spent a chapter on Moses, for crying out loud. He spent a chapter on Joshua in the Promised Land. He has spent now three chapters on the priests. Three chapters of this book. Why has he spent this much time on the priests as opposed to those other things? Well, I don't know for sure because he never says, okay, I'm about to spend an inordinate amount of time on priests, and here's why, just to give you a heads up. He never says that. But I have a hunch that he spends this much time on the priests because from their perspective, if he's writing to those who were tempted to go back to Judaism and had grown up in Judaism, from their perspective, and he's just told them that Jesus is better than those priests, from their perspective, they could write, maybe in their minds rightly ask the question, well, if the old covenant priests, 
that I grew up with, if, if, if they really could make me right with God, how could Jesus be better than that? How, could, how can you improve on that? If an Old Testament priest could make me right with God, how can you be made more right with God than you're already right with God? I mean, how, how could he be greater or better than that? But that question, if indeed they asked it, as plausible as it seems, has a big fat presupposition in it. And, and, and specifically, that presupposition is that the Old Testament, the Old Covenant priests could make you right with God and could cleanse your conscience from the guilt of your sin. That that's, and it's that presupposition that he's disputing in these chapters. And he's showing how the Levitical priests of the Old Covenant through Moses were only ever designed to um, point forward to another priest, a greater priest, of an entirely different order of priesthood. Um, and one that has deep Old Testament roots as well. And that's where our old pal Melchizedek comes in. Um, we started to think about him last week from chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. We spent a lot of our time last week, actually in Genesis 14, um, where we first meet Melchizedek. And, uh, and, and we talked a little bit about who he was. And you'll remember just a few things about him that he, he was both a king and a priest, both a king and a priest, um, in Salem, which later became Jerusalem. Um, and he was a priest of the Most High God, that's what it said. And, and, and meaning, he was a priest of the same God that Abraham worshipped. He was a priest of the same God whom, uh, who had just made a covenant with Abraham. So what did, what did we say was unique in Scripture about Melchizedek? Well, we said three things last week. Um, we, we, said, we said it was his role, his name, and his life were unique. His role, his name, and his life um, were significant. His role in that he was both a priest and a king. Um, that's unique because in the Old Covenant under Moses, those were always two different people. Um, Kings, and it came from two different tribes. Kings came from the tribe of Judah. Priests came from the tribe of Levi. Always two different people. But see, Melchizedek not only lived before Moses, he was in Abraham's day, came before the law. And in his day, they met in one person. Melchizedek, priest and king. In that way, his role foreshadowed Jesus. His name is Melchizedek, literally means King of righteousness in Hebrew. And he was king of Salem. Salem means peace from Shalom. He was king of righteousness, king of peace. His name all by itself was a foreshadow of Jesus. And as for his life, we all got, got all these from verses 1 through 3. As for his life, the author of Hebrews notes that it, whereas there's a, there's, a, um, there's a genealogy for everybody in the Old Testament, but not Melchizedek. We don't know who his parents were, his grandparents. We don't know his lifespan. We don't know anything about him in that way. Um, and in that way, <coughs> it's, it's um, because we don't know anything about his beginning or his ending, his birth or his death. It's, figuratively speaking, it's as if. It's as if he um, is an eternal king and priest, right? 
which is, of course, is a foreshadow of Jesus. Each of those things were pointed out in verses 1 through 3. We're going to look at the rest of chapter 7 today and the two points we didn't get to last week. So before we recall what those were, let's, let's read um, what we're going to talk about. Because even if you don't hear anything I say, you need to hear what God says. All right. Hebrews 7. I'll try to read quickly, but we'll read the chapter. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God. He continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though, uh, though these also were descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who received, received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord Jesus, our Lord, was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, quoting Psalm 110, verse 4, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. On the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God, and it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Again, Psalm 110.4. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of his people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men and their weaknesses, Weakness as high priest, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son, 
who has been made perfect forever. All right, let's pray. Father, this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, sufficient, clear, and perfect word. We want to recognize it as such. We want to submit ourselves to it. It's not something we can do to our own hearts. So we ask you to do it for us. Give us minds to understand the truth that is here. Lord, reading this chapter, we need your help to do it. Give us hearts to embrace the truth that we see. Um, give us wills to obey whatever it leads us to do. Give us all eyes to see and ears to hear. Help us particularly to see the beautiful truth that's here and how um, and what kind of comfort it brings us still today. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, to remind you of the, of the points we introduced last week the, and, and the two that we didn't get to that we'll see today. The first thought we uh, had last week about Melchizedek was how uh, he was and how he pointed forward to a better priest. We saw that in verses 1 through 3. And then today, we'll consider the other two points, specifically that Melchizedek represents a priesthood built on better promises. We'll see that in verses 4 through 21. And finally, the significance of those promises show us how we have a more sure salvation in Jesus Christ as our priest in the order of Melchizedek rather than one of the Levitical priests of the Old Covenant. We'll see that in verses 22 through 28. By the way, if some of you wrote these, these points down last week and put the verses, references that I had for those last two points and, they're, and you notice that they're different today, it's because I had them wrong last week. Um, I typed ones instead of twos. All right, and if you didn't notice, thank you. Um, all right, today we're going to look at the rest of the chapter and those final two points right there, better promises and assure salvation. So let's dive in and think about better promises that, that Melchizedek's priesthood is built on. Now, I don't have to remind you that this chapter is not the easiest one in Hebrews to understand. Um, to be honest, as the one tasked with teaching it to you, uh, I think it's probably the hardest chapter in the book. And there's some hard things in, in Hebrews. But as far as an entire chapter... This one's up there. I mean, it, it is tough sledding to follow his train of thought. And that's not on the author of Hebrews. That's on us. Because um, he's making sense. It, it's just not the easiest thing in the world to explain and understand. So we have to think carefully about what he's saying. And I guess here's how I would, here's how I would explain his, try, to try, try to explain his train of thought in this chapter. Look back at where we left off in verse 3 last week. Where there again he said... He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor the end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. That right there is really, I, I think, the guiding thought to his whole train of thought between verses 4 and 21, or verse 20. Yeah. It's, it's this. It's as if... It's as if Melchizedek, because of his lack of genealogy and, and, and lineage, stated lineage, it's because of that that in, uh, it's as if he lives forever. And in that way, he resembles what is actually true of the Son of God, um, Jesus Christ, who, who is eternal. And that resemblance is going to guide the argument. Uh, Melchizedek represents, 
a priesthood that is eternal. That's what he's pointing at. With that said, let's, let's look again at what he says. In verses 4 through 10, the author is reflecting more <coughs> on the fact that what he mentioned back in verse 2, the fact that Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils of war to Melchizedek as an offering. Um, in other words, uh, Abraham tithed to Melchizedek, the priest Melchizedek. A tithe meaning a tenth. Do you remember the story? I don't, we don't have time to, go, to rehearse the whole thing, but do you remember the story that we said last week from Genesis chapter 14, how Abraham and his men had gone after and had defeated the king, the pagan king, Keterleomer, and his army, why did he go after them and attack them? Because Keterleomer and his army had captured his nephew, Lot, and his family. And so Abraham uh, had gone after to win them back, and he did. And because Abraham's men won the battle, they won all the possessions of the enemy. And Abraham divided those possessions among his men, but when he came to meet the king of Sodom and Melchizedek, the priest king, in, uh, in the valley after the battle, Abraham gave a tenth of those possessions as an offering to Melchizedek, as a tithe offering. And it is that event, as um, unexciting as it may seem, I don't know, it is that event that the author of Hebrews is thinking about in verses 4 through 10. And, and he reasons from that event that Melchizedek and his priesthood uh, is superior to, superior to the Levitical priesthood that came later under the law of Moses. Not only did Abraham uh, live before Moses by about 500 years, but Melchizedek's priesthood is superior to Levi's because in a sense, he argues, um, Levi paid tithes to Melchizedek because he was, as he puts it in verses 9 and 10, he was in, Levi was in Abraham as his descendant when Abraham paid those tithes. That's what he says in verses 9 and 10. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes under the law of Moses, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. And for that reason, he argued that, that Melchizedek's priesthood is both older than and superior to the priests that came later. Because as he says in verse 7, the superior uh, does not pay tithes to the inferior, but it's the other way around. So Melchizedek's priesthood is superior for that reason. But there's a second reason he gives that shows Melchizedek's priesthood is better than Levi's. And to see that second reason, look at me first in verse 11. It says, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? I mean... The verses like this one is why I said earlier, this is one of the hardest chapters in Hebrews. Because it's not, not because that's impossible to understand, but you've got to slow way down and go, what are you saying? Okay, think with me. He says in the middle of that verse, 
what further need, that's not it, what further need would, you, would there have been for another priest to, to rise after the order of Melchizedek? Now, wh- who's he talking about? Another priest to arise after Mel- in there, after the order of Melchizedek. Well, you could give the Sunday school answer and say, Jesus, and you'd be right. But he's reasoning a little deeper than that. He says, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise? Well, where did this expectation come from? that another one would arise um, in Melchizedek's order. Well, he's referring back to what I mentioned earlier, Psalm 110, verse 4, where David said that another priest would arise in the order of Melchizedek. And in fact, he's saying that the Messiah would be that priest. And when he came, he would be a priest forever, forever. He knew that his Jewish readers would know that this expectation of a greater high priest coming was a real one. It's mentioned in the Old Testament scriptures itself. It's not something the Christians were making up. The Old Testament itself says it. There's another priest coming in Melchizedek's order. And by the way, he's going to be a priest forever. Now the task is, who is that? Psalm 110 says it's going to be the Messiah. And so Jesus really is that greater high priest in Melchizedek's order. The reason it's important, by the way, that Jesus' priesthood is, is um, in the order of Melchizedek's and not the same order of priests in the Old Covenant under Levi is because, like we said last week, Jesus' priesthood, and like it says right there, is forever. It's eternal. Like, like Melchizedek resembled in the Old, Old Testament, but even more fundamentally, because like it says, Ju- Jesus was from the tribe of Judah, um, according to his earthly father. And priests under the law of Moses didn't come from that tribe. So being in the order of Melchizedek rather than Levi and Aaron legitimized his priesthood. Because he's, he's not of that order. He's of a different order. Melchizedek's. This is actually the point he's making in verses 13 through 16. We don't have time to look at that closely. But if they had been careful readers of Psalm 110, they would have been expecting this greater high priest in Melchizedek's order to come in the line of Judah as the Messiah would be. But that's where he goes next as it pertains to our point here. Look at verse 12. Because this is the second reason why this priesthood is superior to Levi's. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there's necessarily a change in the law as well. This is how Melchizedek's priesthood pointed to better promises. Because he's saying... In that verse, that when Jesus came as a as a new priest, as a final high priest, um, in a different order of priests than the Jewish high priest under the law of Moses, he is therefore um, a, high, a high priest of a completely different covenantal arrangement. the The priests of the old covenant arrangement under Moses they looked like the Levitical priests. Jesus doesn't look like those priests. Therefore, he's a priest of a completely different kind of covenantal arrangement. Um, And that's exactly the point he makes in verses 18 and 19. On the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. He calls the Old Testament law weak and useless. Right there he does. Why? Not because it was wrong. 
but because it had no power to change our wicked hearts. And it provided no sacrifices that could actually take away sins, which is going to be the focus of the next chapters. Which is why when Christ came, a better hope is introduced. Because He brings with Himself, as our high priest of a completely different order than the Old Testament priest, He brings uh, better promises with Him. He's not like the old covenant priests, which will be clear um, in the coming chapters, but he's, he's the, the eternal great high priest who is our forever great high priest of a brand new covenant. That, that's the point here. And the last point that we need to see quickly, and I mean quickly, because we need to have some time to flesh this out, is that as our forever great high priest of a new covenant filled with precious promises, these, these promises of uh, 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 and his work as our forever high priest bring them, brings us a sure salvation. Look at verse 22. Having, having spent, verses 4 through 21, uh, a great deal of time uh, basically showing how Jesus as our high priest is a greater high priest than the old ones but for two reasons. One, Levi kind of paid tithes to Melchizedek and the inferior is paying tithes to the superior and Jesus our high priest brings better covenant promises now he's going to flesh that out verse 22 this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant that's a great verse that's exactly what he's been saying if you hadn't gotten that yet and I don't blame you if you haven't if he's a high priest of a different order from the old covenant, then he brings with him a new covenant. How is, how is he better than the old covenant priests? For one, he lives forever, whereas they didn't. That's the point of verses 23 and 24. The former priests were many in number. Because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. The old covenant priests, they all died. Levi died. And every one of his descendants died. And their, their work died with them. But Christ rose from the dead after his sacrifice on our behalf never to die again. And because he lives forever as our great high priest, his priestly work never ends like the old covenant priests did. We learn this from what is perhaps the most beautiful verse in this chapter. Verse 25. Most people don't know anything that Hebrews chapter 7 says, except this. <laughs> Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. I just want to say, before I say something about this verse, if you wonder why it's important to work really hard and 
try to understand all the earlier parts of Hebrews 7 that we've just been trying to do. As hard as it is, and as confusing as it can be, what is all this Levi being in the loins of Abraham, paying tithes and all this kind of stuff? Why is it important to work really hard and do your best to try to understand all that and follow his train of thought and follow the argument and have to go, am I right? And check it against your... Why is it hard? Why is it important to do that? Because that verse begins with the word consequently. It's not... A, it's not this is God telling you. It's not enough. To just say, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. As true as that is, how are you supposed to know whether it's true? Consequently, He's able to do that. Consequently, based on all that He's just said, which means you've got to put in the work to understand all that He said so that when you get to verse 25, it takes your breath away. And you go, that is true. What is Jesus praying for? That's what make intercession means. He's praying. Looking at that verse, what is Jesus praying for? The verse says he's praying for them. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. Well, who are they? Those who draw near to God through him. And that means you, if you're doing that today. And that means me. He is praying because what does a priest do? <laughs> That's why all that goes before this is so important. That's why chapter 5 and 6 and 7 are all packed into that word consequently. Because what does a priest do? What did an old covenant priest do? He offered sacrifices for the people and then prayed for the people. That's what an old covenant priest did. Jesus, as our great high priest of Melchizedek's order, does the same thing. He offered the sacrifice for sins, which in his case turned out to be the offer of himself. And once that sacrifice has been, pray, been paid, he prays for those for whom it is given. He's praying that the atonement of his once-for-all sacrifice in your place will never cease to be applied to your life. That's what he's praying for. He is praying as a, as a good priest. He's praying as a great high priest that the atonement for his once-for-all sacrifice in your place will never cease to be Applied to your life. He forever stands between you and the judgment seat of God. That's what he's praying for you right now. And praying for me. That's a beautiful thought. Um, there's a... It's a cool little string of verses that give even more um, surety to this. 
Um, 1 John 5, it's not on the screen, but 1 John chapter 5 says this. These are a couple of good memory verses if you want to jot them down. 1 John 5, 14 and 15. You may already be familiar with these verses, but John says, and this is the confidence we have toward him, toward God that is, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know that And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of Him. Put that train of thought together. If you pray pray to God and ask something according to His will, He hears you. And if He hears you because it was according to His will, you have what you asked for. Is that not what it says? Right? If we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if He hears us, we have what we asked. That's what it says. If He hears your prayer, it's because you prayed according to His will and He will give you what you asked for. Keep that principle in mind and flip back to John chapter 11. This is when um, Lazarus died. We'll begin reading in verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone was laid against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Now, verse 41 and 42. So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Now, what is that? that, uh, Lifted up his eyes and said, What does that insinuate he's doing? praying right so you can say jesus prayed what did he pray he said father i thank you that you heard me i knew that you always hear me but i said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me what does it imply when jesus prays according to the principle we just laid out in first john 5 That if we pray according to God's will, he hears us. Jesus said, you always hear me when I pray. Implying, whenever Jesus prays, he's always praying the perfect will of God. And praise the perfect will, he's always heard. And if we pray according to his will and he hears us, what's the result? We have what we've asked. God gives it. So now Jesus, as our high priest, it says he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, 
since he always lives to make intercession for them. He's always praying. Always praying. He never ceases praying that the once for all atonement of his sacrifice would be applied to your life. And when he prays, he's always heard. And it's always granted. That's what he's praying right now. There's more to say about this chapter, but I'm tired. And that's fine. We'll, we'll continue to flesh this out in the next chapters, um, how the Old Covenant has been um, bested by the New. So let's pray.